0: Oh, uh, such a big intro! It's like, <laughs> how do we keep up with that? Hey, oh, it's, it's, okay. it's one hundred and three skulls here on the uh, disability law show. Uh, our good pals, of course, are here doing all the heavy lifting. Tamara Gopian and James Fireman. Look at that! He's been trapped under something heavy for a couple weeks. He was like Jimmy Hoffa, but he's back. Good to have him back too. James, welcome back, buddy. Hope the holiday was okay. And uh, we're all set to go, man. Here's the uh, here's the deal: you have an opportunity over the next hour to call in and ask your questions. James and Tamara always ready to do so. So you have questions about disability, dealing with the insurer or being cut off or asked to appeal, all the things we talk about every week. They're so important. You can do so. 416 872 416-872-1010. There's a number to get to us live, 416 872 1010. Help at disabilityrights.ca as well. Let's get into this, guys. We always start off with a, uh, a case of the day or a week that was uh, tomorrow. I think you're taking over this week. What do you got, pal?
1: Well, yeah, the team is back. Mm-hmm. Um, so I thought the intro was great too. And I wanted to <laughs> feature this week a conversation that I had with a woman uh, earlier. You know, during our consultations. And I'm going to try and keep the details sort of at a high level to protect her privacy. But I thought that what she was describing was quite reminiscent of some of the issues that we talk about through our shows. And it is, the basis of it is a mental health disability, but she had ongoing work issues in her workplace that ultimately led to her doctor advising that she stop working and make a disability application. So she essentially had a nervous breakdown uh, in the work setting, stemming from things that were happening in the workplace and to some extent outside of her workplace. She applied for short-term disability benefits and was denied. And in that process of being denied, was trying at the same time to make concerted efforts to improve her health and perhaps find her way back to the employment setting. When she got the denial of the short-term claim, she just felt, you know, desperation in terms of financial, uh, you know, pressures, not having money having come in for several months. So she asked her doctor to sign her off to get back to work, and she did. Uh, but clearly. Uh, it, she hadn't given herself enough time and found herself off work again as a result of her health a couple of months further down the road. So now we're essentially in month four or five, and she submitted further medical information to the administrator of the short-term plan, saying, hey, you know, I've had, a, in essence, a recurrence, and I require further disability benefits. And not surprisingly, she was denied again. And the basis for the denial for the insurance company is twofold. The first thing they said to her was, look, this is a crappy work situation. You should talk to HR about this. You know, there must be something they can do about what's been happening with your work setting that led to the disability claim. Uh, You know, and we don't think you're totally disabled from your own occupation because this is all workplace related. So that was the first thing they said to her. Classic. Uh, And the second part of the denial was, and if that's not good enough, we don't think it's severe enough that you should be off work, because you have demonstrated the ability to return. So it must mean that you're not totally disabled through this whole period of time, which, of course, nothing could be further from the truth. So she's come to us seeking further advice. And really, the first thing I suggested to her was, well, look, now you should be applying for long-term disability benefits as well. So for those who are listening and they're wondering, look, if I get resisted from short-term a couple of times, even maybe one time, you know, does that inevitably disentitle me for long-term disability benefits? Absolutely not. In fact, some insurers are different for long-term than they are for short-term. So you should never assume that automatically you will apply for long-term or your employer is going to do that on your behalf, or maybe because it's, perhaps the same insurer, that you don't have to take that step. You should get confirmation from your employer and or the insurer whether an application is needed. And regardless, completing the application in and of itself, in my mind, serves as further evidence, further medical support that there's an ongoing disability. So that was the starting point of my analysis with her. And tied to that fairly closely was further articulation, further support from her own doctors. At this point, there was also the psychologist who was involved recommending that she stay off work along with the family doctor. And I said to her, you need to have both of them really get into the weeds on the symptoms, the health issues that are impacting you and that are preventing you from working, despite the fact that now, even now, you tried to even go back And that this has been a fairly long-standing issue, but regardless, is pervasive and persisting outside of the work setting as well. So it undermines really what the insurer's analysis is. But of course, we see this as their fallback position. If they can blame the workplace, then they're going to say you're not totally disabled from your own occupation, at least out of the gates. So... We're going to get retained for this matter for a variety of reasons. There is an underlying employment component, but the first and foremost uh, is really pursuing these disability benefits. And the LTD application in a context like this is really, really critical. James, what do you think?
2: Well, there was a part of your explanation that really caught my attention that I thought I would dig into a little bit more. And I don't think it was really critical for your case, but it is something that comes up a lot, which is what your doctors might say if you are trying to return to work. If you need a doctor's note in order to be allowed to return to work, some employers are going to require that. And it can get a little bit tricky because certainly if you are planning to return to work and you need that income and that's what you're looking forward to doing, then you're going to need that support from your doctor. But at the same time, you want you, you don't want your doctor saying something that would prevent you from being able to go back on claim if you're not successful. And it's an issue that came up quite recently for me during, actually for Savon and I, uh, we were doing a conference for some psychoanalysts, for a national group of psychoanalysts. There's about 40 or 50 of them on the call, and it's a group of several hundred. And we do this fairly regularly. We'll meet with groups of treatment providers who just want to understand the process better. Because what, what we really have to understand here is that doctors and therapists, they don't go to school with the intention of dealing with insurance companies. They go to school, they get their training so that they can treat you. And very frequently in practice, no one is really giving them the insight that they need in order to understand the process and to effectively help their patients. So that's where we come in. We, We do these sessions with groups of different treatment providers to give them that information. And it's a question that comes up all the time. What happens when I have a patient who is looking to go back to work? How can I best support them? And a very legitimate question and one that many treatment providers don't know the answer to. And if their patients aren't really able to fill them in on that, then they do their best. And frequently what happens in those situations is the doctor meeting well or the therapist meeting well will say that the their patient is ready to return to work, that they can go back to work, um, perhaps with some limitations or not, but that they're able to go back to work and they'll put it in that way in a fairly positive or optimistic light to what they perceive as help their patient Mm -hmm. be able to show to their employer that they're ready to return so that they can make the income that they need. That's, of course, why the patient came to them in the first place to get that note. The problem with that can be, though, if the return to work isn't successful, what we see happen all the time, and I thought this is where you're going to work, what we see happen all the time is that if the return is not successful, the insurer turns around and says, well, your doctor said you're okay to go back to work. So you know, even though you've tried to say that you can't, the medical evidence doesn't support that. And so what is the best solution in this scenario if you are looking for support from your doctor to return to work? What you want is a letter from your doctor or therapist that says you are ready to try to return to work. We don't know if you're going to succeed, but we're ready to try. Here is what's needed in order to give you the best possibility of success. You need these accommodations, these restrictions, this graduated work schedule, whatever your doctor believes is going to be necessary in order for you to have the best chance at success. That's up to them. I'm not here to you know provide any medical opinion whatsoever. But it is really important that unless your doctor or therapist is absolutely certain That you're ready to return to work and it's almost never the case that they are that they express whatever doubts that they have in that letter they say yes you're ready to try and we'll reassess in however many weeks or months is appropriate in the circumstances but you want to avoid having a definitive statement that is going to work against you down the line
0: the language is so important right it is
1: oh my gosh and i was gonna say as well that we don't often talk about recurrence provisions in the short-term claims as well. So short-term disability, some policies have recurrences as well for this exact reason that a short-term policy is there to provide benefits for 17 weeks, maybe 26 weeks, so the first four to six months of claims. And there is recurrences that can occur. Now, that recurrence is a much shorter period of time. Long-term is six months. I think with short-term, it's it's a number of weeks. But to this exact point is that the disability insurers need to anticipate that this could happen, especially with mental health claims. But they don't have the sensitivity to it. And frankly, they want to resist it regardless. So it's easier for them to say no out of the gates and keep saying no, as opposed to doing the right thing, which is... Let's support this individual, perhaps for a relatively short period of time, but just enough to get them better and to have the time to recover so that they can get back to work in what makes sense from a health perspective, not just because you know they want to not pay the disability benefit. So I absolutely agree with James. Um, but I think that for our listeners, they really need to understand that there are line, landmines along the way. But at the bottom line is, is that if you're having the support from your doctors not to return, you really should try and follow that advice. Because if you put yourself back into a situation that's not healthy for you, you may land yourself taking four steps back and then you're still fighting the disability insurer regardless.
0: Great stuff, guys. We're going to take a short break and give you a chance to collect your thoughts, get into some emails. You can always send one along uh, to the show. We'd love to have you reading your stuff out here anytime we do the show. Help at disabilityrights.ca. And that phone number to get on air now. Talk to us. Be that uh, fourth voice. Join us. 416-872-1010. And we'll continue. Uh, lots more of the Disability Law Show is coming up. Hang on. All we are back, which means you're back. Good to have you on this afternoon at 1.20 here on a rainy Saturday. Good time to grab a phone and a coffee, ask your questions. You uh, have concerns dealing with an insurer, disability law insurer, disability insurer rather. Maybe you've been cut off or told to be cut off. Maybe you never got on, you know, claim to begin with, or maybe you've been told to appeal because you're about to be cut off or have been cut off. There's a million different things can happen with these big bruising, money-making entities, but that's okay. The, uh, the things are stacked in your favor because you have Tamar and James here doing the show every week so they can help you. Uh, to call through right now, 416-872-1010. Email is help at disabilityrights.ca. Got an email for you here, tomorrow, right off the uh, top. First sure. one comes from Jody. Says, hey guys, worked for a company that had a union. I became disabled and was off work when our contract was still in negotiation. When the contract was settled, uh, they back paid the employees to a time when I was still at work. Should my LTD formula be adjusted to include this increase?
1: Good question, Jody. Mm. So look, the policies, these disability policies have really specific formulas and provisions around how the LTD benefit is calculated. Typically, you know, the benefit, as we say, is two-thirds of what you were making before the time that you became disabled. However, some policies may include some adjustments along the way. And so my initial inclination with Jody is you've got to find that out. If there has been a retroactive adjustment to her pay, then it could be that the disability benefit and policy will accept that or have something embedded in it to acknowledge for that. And therefore, her LTD benefit should also accordingly increase, obviously via percentage. So the increase may not be significant, but still an important one. The other advice that I give to individuals around how does the LTD benefit get calculated is that it is absolutely fair to ask your adjuster when you are approved for benefits, how did this get calculated? John, some insurers are better than others in actually including that calculation in their approval letters. And so for those insurers who are not, I were to the wise, they really do need to be transparent with claimants about this. Because I have seen times where people have you know, their benefit is a proportion to a salary level that's actually lower than their actual salary level. Mm. And so individuals come to us and say, well, what's the discrepancy? What, what could this be? Why? And some employers actually do not report properly or adjust these changes to an annual income because the premiums get rated differently, right? So if your salary levels are lower, then your premiums are gonna be lower. So you wanna make sure as an employee that you're covered for the actual amounts that you're earning and a proportion of that, typically two thirds. What comes to mind very routinely is individuals who are earn a base and a commission. Yes. Some disability policies don't include that commission part, right, John? And so you find yourself perhaps in a sales setting, you know, I can think of a variety of different occupations that would have that kind of salary component, and then they are unpleasantly surprised when they are approved, but they are approved only on their base salary. So you want to get the policy wording. If you're not sure, it's absolutely fine to ask the adjuster to give you some transparency on the calculation. And then if you still think that something's not quite right, you know that we're only a phone call and an email away. Um, especially Jody, when you're in a situation where you're unionized, you know, don't hesitate to reach out to a disability lawyer. I think some unions, John, have been saying that you know lawyers don't have a role in the union setting, which is also not true. There are many, many unionized individuals that we can help. And frankly, these disability policies, whether you're unionized or not, is really what dictates how the disability benefit is calculated.
0: Yeah, I'm thinking in the situation you just mentioned, especially with servers, you know, if you're working in that sort of industry yeah. where it's like, you know, your your base salary is going to be a pittance, but you may earn a heck of a lot more depending on your skin level, uh, skill level and tips, so on and so forth. So you got to be uh, cognizant of that as well, right?
1: Absolutely. And I think wow. that You know, most employees, when they start a new job, they will be given like a benefits package or a Mm -hmm. booklet, and it typically will describe to you, you know, what your coverages are. And most people don't even take a second look at that stuff, John. Uh, But I can tell you that it can be an important thing just to spend a couple of minutes considering, because you may have an option to actually increase your coverages. So look, I'm going to put my insurance broker hat on now for a moment. But for example, You know, a cost of living adjustment in this day and age where you've got massive inflation, if you've got that kind of an adjustment embedded into your LTD benefit, that's huge. Because otherwise, if you're on claim for even two or three or four years, and that LTD benefit is crystallized to the earnings you were making three years ago, and then there's been massive inflation, that LTD benefit is not gonna increase unless you've gotten the optional coverage or extra coverage. So same with servers and other types of employees. They may just get the base salary being offered by the employer, but if you have the option to get more, and if you can pay the premium or consider what you need to do there, just give it a looky look. That's all. Because famous last words, you think you may not need it, uh, but if it's a nominal amount to increase that coverage, you may want to just avail yourself of it so that you're not in the situation down the road where you're like, well, I'm not properly covered and I simply can't survive on the LTD benefit alone.
0: Great stuff. And uh, By the way, reaching out anytime to Tamar or James through an email just like that, help at disabilityrights.ca. You have one eight five five eight. Two one fifty nine hundred, but here and now, always give us a call on air, and that is four one six eight seven two ten ten. And in that regard, getting to uh, to David. Hey, David, thanks for standing by for a moment, pal. How are you today? Good. How about yourself, sir? Good. Thanks for taking the time. What's on your mind? Uh,
2: so my my wife worked for a, a very large international company. Uh, she was diagnosed with uh, lupus and uh, was denied long term disability. Um, we haven't spoke to anyone about it yet, but her policy is. A pretty good policy it does allow uh, for cost of living increases and and so forth uh, we're just wondering what are the drawbacks if we um, pursue a settlement versus just getting regular benefits and how do how would you usually say you know what a good settlement would be in comparison to what she would get over right. uh,
0: her lifetime with benefits
1: absolutely well thanks for calling in David I mean I think we Probably should have another conversation, but just for the purposes of our show, um, you know, can you share with me how old your wife is? Uh,
2: she is uh, 32.
1: Okay, so look, that's a lot of years on a policy if it's going to be totally disabling for the lifetime of her employability, right? So these disability policies typically will pay until she's 65 years old. That's a lot of years. So you know, in terms of the pros and cons of what you're calling, I think, is to get the benefit month over month, we call that a reinstatement or an instatement versus a lump sum settlement. And there are pros and cons to both, absolutely. But without really getting into the weeds on her medical and health history and what the projection of the future is for her, I really couldn't give you a firm answer as to whether one or the other is better. I can tell you with a reinstatement or instatement, the main criteria that I tell my clients is, look, uh, you will not have the benefit or the protection of a lawyer when you are dealing with the disability insurer in an in-statement situation. In other words, I can't play intervener. I cannot protect you from the constant adjudication efforts, the continued requests for updated medical, perhaps they want to send you for an assessment or treatment and so on. And so just looking at your wife's age alone, I suspect there's going to be very active adjudication because they're not going to want to continue paying that benefit until she's 65. They're going to be looking continually through the policy terms and conditions and finding opportunities to try and cut off that claim to get her back to work or into another work setting. On the other hand, the lump sum settlement really does give you a lot of compensation up front and it's a conversation with the disability insurer that we have very routinely when we're involved on behalf of our clients about what makes sense about an appropriate buyout of the disability policy. So when we look at age, medical, prognosis, diagnosis, function, there are so many factors involved, David, in that assessment. but. It would be a buyout for a number of years, especially if your wife's doctors are saying, look, this is going to be maintenance for her for lupus, but never is it going to be a situation where she's going to have enough capacity to work.
2: Um, david james fireman here so I, I just caught the tail end i had to jump off of uh, of our segment here but i did catch the tail end of your question and i do have quite a few things i'd like to add but i see that we're coming up on our break so perhaps you might want to stick around until yep. we come out of the break and uh, we can continue this conversation though.
0: dave okay, do exactly that hold hands. on pal you bet. Hang on, and we'll uh, we'll get to you here in a moment. Just uh, grab a coffee and stand by. We will return, and that'll give you time, just like David, to make that phone call and to uh, ask your questions to James and Tamar. How do you do it? 416-872-1010. We'll get back to our emails as well. That is help at disabilityrights.ca. And another place we're going to go to is mydisabilityquestions.com. Free and anonymous. Use your tablet, your phone, your desktop, whatever you want. Ask your questions. It's there, uh, there as well. We'll continue. This is the Disability Law Show. Stand by. It one thirty-four. Welcome back to the show. Good to have you along. Yeah, Calls uh, can come this way. 416-872-1010. Want to uh, send an email along, which we'll get to, back to here in just a moment. Help at disabilityrights.ca. Which, guys, is exactly what uh, Dave did. He made that phone call a few minutes ago. He, uh, we lost him. I guess he hung up and had to do some other things. But, yeah, Tamar, uh, James was poking around the idea of a settlement from the insurance company, but uh, that kind of set off a couple alarm bells for you guys. What uh, What do you think?
2: So I I just caught the tail end of Dave's question regarding his wife. And uh, as I understand it, she is suffering from lupus she applied for, but was denied disability benefits. And he's wondering whether a reinstatement or instatement versus a lump sum payout is preferable. And significantly, she's only 32 years old. And as Tamar had mentioned before our our break on last segment, That leaves a lot of time, typical policy goes to age 65. So that's potentially up to 33 years of benefits. So when anyone contacts me and we go through the intake process and we talk about the retainer and how the litigation process unfolds if they decide to bring a lawsuit, invariably we talk about what happens when we get to settlement, what does that look like? And in the vast majority of cases, when you bring a lawsuit against your insurance company, for denying your disability benefits is almost always going to be a lump sum, almost always. Very rarely is it a reinstatement or an instatement if you've never been approved. The exceptions to that, though, are typically in situations like this, where someone is applying and is relatively young, has a lot of years left in the process. And so in this case, Dave's wife has 30-odd years left of potential disability payments. That is a really long time. That can present a lot of risk in a full and final settlement, a lump sum for both sides. So, for example, if there was a, an agreement reached, let's say they split the difference. Let's say the insurance company and Dave's wife agreed that 16 years of future benefits was the appropriate amount, halfway between the maximum and nothing. Mm-hmm. Well, the problem with that from Dave's wife's perspective is if she agrees to that and never returns to work, she's given up 16 years of future benefits. On the other hand, if the insurer agrees to that and Dave's wife is able to return to work in a year or two, they've just paid her an extra 14 or 15 years of benefits. That is a lot of risk for both sides. And because of that, it is More common, although still uncommon, but it is more common when dealing with people that are in their early 30s or younger that are applying for disability, that we at least consider the possibility of a reinstatement. Usually there are a lot of negatives around that and enough that people just don't want to deal with. You have to deal with your insurance company again. They can cut you off in the future. You're going to have to go to their assessments. They're going to poke their nose in your treatment. And so there are a lot of downsides to reinstatement that make it really unpalatable for most people, but when you have so many years of benefits ahead of you, it really can become something that is worthwhile considering. It may not be something your insurer is even prepared to contemplate, reinstatement oftentimes when they when we bring a lawsuit against an insurer they're prepared to come to the table and pay a full and final settlement but they're not prepared to reinstate they don't want more claims on the books and usually they're prepared to pay a little bit better than they otherwise would just to get that claim off of the books Hmm. and so it isn't a case where we're usually looking for reinstatement But in this particular case, it is something that I would definitely advise is worthwhile considering. Now, the caveat to that, of course, though, is I don't really know anything about Dave's wife's health other than that she's been diagnosed with lupus. I'm certainly not an expert in lupus. Um, I, I know only enough about it that it's a serious condition and I think it's progressive. And so it really depends on where she is in the continuum of that particular disease, and what symptoms she's having at any particular time. If it is a situation where it is slowly progressing and it is very difficult to predict what her level of functionality is going to be at any point in time, then again, there is this risk here about what she's going to be able to do, how long she's going to be able to work, that may necessitate looking at a reinstatement. On the other hand, If her level of functionality is already at the point where it's very clear that not only can she not work now, but she's never going to return to work in the future, I don't really see where a reinstatement is a likely result. Because from the insurer's perspective, they really will know that a reinstatement means that they're paying benefits until age 65. So they're going to come to the table wanting to not pay, not do a reinstatement. They probably won't even contemplate that. Mm -hmm. So as with all things, it depends. uh, But it is a situation where I would at least keep the door open to a reinstatement, depending on her symptoms and on her level of function.
0: Anything to add tomorrow you've uh, you've well, had your shot at that sucker
1: I I mean I yes I, uh, and I sort of shared all of that with Dave as well that uh, there is a lot of factors to consider and we really do want to get into it a little more with him and his wife if we have that opportunity to do so But I I can't help but let this one go without talking about appeals, guys. I mean, this is just screaming out. I mean, they've denied her claim. She's 32. She has lupus. Yes, what I know is what James knows, which is it is a progressive condition. It absolutely can have impacts that are relapsing and remitting that prevent someone from doing uh, their occupation or any occupation. So... You know, you got to wonder whether the age and the type of health issue that she has has influenced the decision to deny the claim out of the gates. I mean, we'd want to know a little more, but I have to communicate to our listeners that you know, this is what insurers will do. They will look at the values of these claims, the earnings that you have, the disability benefit that you might be entitled to, how long their exposure is, and if they can resist those disability claims, they will deny. They will routinely invite you to appeal two, three times with further medical information. You've got the same people looking at the same information. And unless there's something new to add to the profile, you're going to be keeping to meet that same denial time and time again. And so this is why I think that a legal claim in these types of contexts, for all of the reasons that James and I have already expressed, that there are so many factors at play that there's considerations that are important both for David and his wife and the disability insurer in terms of what this should look like, what's best for everyone, but it certainly cannot be a no, and we're going to just accept the no, but say pretty please, let's appeal this again, and maybe we get another no and another no. This is why the disability litigation is so much more effective, so much more efficient, because it affords us the opportunity to talk more reasonably about a reinstatement or a lump sum settlement
0: want we'll to get to one from MyDisabilityQuestions.com, guys, and uh, it goes like this. Guys, the adjuster on my case wants to, me to release all my GP notes of all my appointments for the last year. I told him I was not comfortable with this on the phone, and he agreed to send a questionnaire instead, but in his follow-up email, the adjuster requested the entirety of the medical records again. Do I have to release everything? Well, if you want your benefits, you probably do, unfortunately. Um, The reality, I mean, you don't have to do
2: that, but you have to appreciate that if you don't, your insurer is very likely to cut off your benefits and they may well be justified in doing so. They are entitled to relevant medical information and your GP's clinical notes and records are in virtually every case going to be relevant. And so even if you don't want them having that, they're entitled to it. And there's a good reason for that they have to have the ability to properly assess your case. So if you are you know, in a position where you just absolutely do not want your insurance company looking at those records, then you have to decide what is more important to you, continuing your benefits or protecting that information. And for some people it's protecting that information and so be it. If that is what your greater interest is then I accept that as long as you accept that it means you're not likely going to get those benefits. But ultimately, at the end of the day, they're going to be entitled to them, even if they said at some point a questionnaire is okay for now, that doesn't disentitle them to get those records um, and that they requested it is not inappropriate, in my view. Anything to add to that, Tamar?
1: Yeah, I agree with you, James. I mean, ultimately, the onus to demonstrate that you have a valid disability claim, at least out of the gates, lands on the claimant. It's up to you to show that you've got that medical support, that you meet that test to qualify. Uh, that onus may shift and change, and there's all sorts of other things we can get into. But just strictly to respond to the to the question that's raised, you, you do want to share that medical information. The further logs on the fire, so to speak, the better it is in terms of getting those benefits approved and paid.
0: With that, guys, we'll take another short break. Get right back to it. Lots of warm emails and notes to go. Uh, 416-872-1010 is the number. Email address is help at disabilityrights.ca. And as I mentioned before, use this website. Even before all that, mydisabilityquestions.com. It's free, anonymous. You can leave your questions there. Searchable too, yeah? So you can see if your uh, question has been asked before. Again, that's mydisabilityquestions.com. And we'll get to that and much more when we return with more of the Disability Law Show. Hang on. All righty, welcome back. Still some time to go. It is one fifty on your Saturday, and uh, good to have you along. Emails help at disabilityrights.ca. Other questions, my disabilityquestions.com, and you can always text your questions to seven ten ten. Still got some time for the phone number, too, right? 416-872-1010. Let's get to a text, guys. It says, says, uh, I've been on LTD for 27 months due to a concussion. My doctors think that I might not be able to go back to my previous executive job as a full-timer, but perhaps only one, maybe two hours weekly because stress makes me symptomatic. Is my employer obligated to take me back for only two hours as I will not be able to increase my hours in the future? Tomorrow. am to jump
1: in. Yeah, Yeah, I'm going to jump in on this one as the resident employment, uh, so to speak, lawyer uh, on our panel today uh, and say that, yes, there is uh, a real uh, conversation to have with your employer about whether or not they can accommodate. Now, it is a duty to accommodate uh, to the point of undue hardship. And it's not a hard and fast rule as to what that means. It is a case by case analysis. So. You will want more details from your doctors about what your tolerance is to work, and then it would likely be on you to broach something directly with your employer about, you know, look, this is my accommodation request. These are my restrictions and limitations. Here's my medical information supporting that. You know, what is it that you can do reasonably, employer, to accommodate these limits? I think that the one to two hours a week though, considering it sounds like a fairly um, comprehensive job an executive level job and so on, I have to wonder whether the employer may resist that return just from a practical perspective. Mm -hmm. And this is where the undue hardship of that duty comes in, which is if it's going to be too uh, financially or practically difficult for the employer to reasonably put you back into that position, then they may not necessarily be obligated to take you back into that position. So, the next step then becomes, you know, is there something else that can accommodate you in terms of that work setting and tolerance with those restrictions and limitations? And frankly, with a profile like that, um, you know, is there an expectation to increase those hours and whether that makes sense? So, I think out of the gates you want to try and have that conversation and dialogue with your employer with the support of your medical information of course and see where that takes you Uh, but for the employer to say no not at all you must be at a hundred percent is not in line with an employer's duty to accommodate James what do you think about the disability part of it
2: I think you've nailed it. I don't really have anything (laughs) to
1: add. Well, look, you know, with someone being on claim for 27 months, you know, that tells me that they have passed the threshold of own occupation, most likely, and they are now in the any occupation phase of the policy. And we know that's usually around the 24 month period. And so what's important for individuals to know is that once you've crossed that threshold, it can be a little tougher, actually, for the insurer to then find a means to get you off claim, first and foremost, even if there's a limited capacity to work, because that threshold really will be tied to commensurate earnings. And we talk about this through our various shows, that Your own occupation test is really getting you back to your own job, the job you were doing before you became unwell and earning at 100% typically, or something close to that level. But when you get to that change of definition beyond that point, the threshold for earnings is much lower. It's now two thirds of what you were making before. And if the disability insurer has accepted you past that point, then that's part of the conversation about, look, what am I reasonably capable of doing? What are my ongoing restrictions and limitations? are those permanent? And if they are permanent and they're not going to allow you to get to that commensurate level of earnings, then those LTD benefits actually should be continuing, even if your doctor says you can maybe work for an hour or two a week.
0: Malika is up next, guys. Another email. Again, help at disabilityrights.ca is how this works. Says, guys, I'm worried about how I'm going to pay my bills when my LTD benefits get cut off. The insurance company said I can do another job earning minimum wage. And so my LTD benefits are ending in three months. My doctor disagrees, but the insurance company doesn't seem to care. I was already barely scraping by with just the LTD amount. I'm not sure what to do. Are there any benefits, other benefits I can access? Really good question, because when people contact us, they often want to know,
2: What happens while we're fighting the insurance company? And so just so there's some context here, typically when we are retained, the process is going to last something like 10 months, maybe a year until we get to resolution. It can be quicker than that in some cases, but that shouldn't be your expectation. Your expectation should be 10 months to a year before we get it resolved, which by litigation standards is incredibly fast. But... That still creates this problem that Malika is referring to. What am I going to do for money in the interim? And I wish there were really great answers. There aren't. There are some stopgaps, some band-aids that can help. So if you have not yet applied for the sickness EI, you can do that. I think that's 16 or 17 weeks. Uh, That can help. There is also CPP disability, which... Often is not going to be something that you're going to be able to uh, be approved for very early on in a disability because the test is a severe and prolonged disability. In Malika's case, I'm not sure if that's true because it sounds like she's already passed the own occupation phase because the insurer is saying she can do another job, which suggests to me that she's in the any occupation period which means she's been off for probably about two and a half years at this point. So she might be able to get access to CPP disability. It may well have been long enough that her application could be approved. And that can be up to another $1,500 or so per month. Uh, I would also suggest for anybody who is applying for CPP disability that they also apply for the disability tax credit. Those are two separate programs run by the federal government. Unfortunately, they're run by two different arms of the federal government. So you actually have to apply for them separately, even though the test for both of them is very similar. They both use the same severe and prolonged language. The The idea with the disability tax credit is to ensure that If you are approved, there isn't a tax consequence to it. So those are really the government programs that I could think of. I see we just had a text come in. um, And, John, I'm just going to read this out because I think it's important. I want to get to it. So someone has just texted us and says, hi, guys. Is alcoholism a legitimate disability and reason to claim long-term disability benefits? Love your show. And the the answer to that is yes, yes, it absolutely is. It is something that many people who suffer from don't apply for for any number of different reasons. Sometimes they just don't want to shine a light on that issue, um, out of whatever embarrassment there might be or any sense that um, there's you know something socially unacceptable about it. Uh, it is absolutely a legitimate disability, and there is no reason not to apply. It is something that absolutely requires treatment and should be. Uh, approved for if it is medically disabled. So the answer is absolutely, certainly you should be applying if you have a disability based on uh, alcoholism or any other substance abuse issues. There are sometimes policies that have language that suggest a very limited scope in how that's dealt with, but very often the way that it's worded is actually not legally appropriate and can Mm -hmm. be challenged. So the short answer is yes. If you are suffering from alcoholism or substance abuse, you can and should apply. And if you're denied, contact us, and let's talk about how we can get you on call.
0: And that is about it for another day. Nicely done, guys. Appreciate uh, your phone calls, your emails, and your contact through MyDisabilityQuestions.com, which can continue now. So feel free to do that, to reach out to James. And tomorrow, the phone number, one eight five five eight two one fifty nine hundred, 5900 right? And finally, the email is help at disabilityrights.ca. We'll catch you next weekend right here on the Disability Law Show.